Sermon on the Mount, we reach uh, its conclusion this morning. Our sermon text this morning is chapter 7 of Matthew, verses 21 to 29. Again, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 29. And you'll notice one of the first things, or, or one of the things that you will notice is that uh, the remainder of this chapter, not all the words are a part of Jesus' sermon. You can see there, those last two verses are uh, some editorial remarks that the Apostle Matthew includes in the sermon, or includes at the end of the sermon, rather, uh, to give us an understanding of how the sermon of Jesus Christ was received by the listeners. Again, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 29. Listen carefully. This is the Word of God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you as those who seek to be astonished by the teaching of your word. Your word, O Lord, has authority. You speak word by word, page by page in the words of Scripture with authority. And so we pray, dear Lord, that you would give us ears to hear. We pray, Lord, that you would firmly establish our faith upon the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ, upon his words. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to hear, that you would cause us to obey that you would cause us, Lord, by your Spirit to bear fruit, to give evidence, O oh Lord, of the faith that is in our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Way back, one summer when I was in college, I obtained a commercial driver's, commercial driver's license and drove tour buses for a Christian tour company that was based uh, down in Florida. For one of the tours uh, that I drove around, one of the groups I drove around that summer, I had the tough duty of spending a week at Disney World. I was with a high school group uh, from England, and it was their first trip to the United States, and uh, by all means, their first trip to Disney World. Well, one of the days that I was there, I wore one of my old high school t-shirts. And while waiting in line to get, a ride, uh, get on a ride, I struck up a conversation with a man who was next to me in line. 
and he noticed my t-shirt and he knew exactly where the high school was because he had lived in the same county in North Carolina where I went to school, where I grew up. And one of the things that he told me very quickly <laughs> was that he could not wait to get away from North Carolina, to get back to Florida because North Carolina was the center, was the buckle of the Bible Belt. And he needed to get away because there were expectations upon him expectations of uh, ways of behavior that he did not appreciate. And so he moved back to Florida where he could be freer in his lifestyle. Now, even though the man that I encountered at Disney World was not a profession Christian, I doubt that he named the name of Jesus Christ, he was right about something. He was right that it can be difficult for Christians to live in the so-called Bible Belt, that sort of southern region of the United States where, where the Bible, where Christianity has had such a powerful influence for hundreds of years. Now this isn't as much the case in large metropolitan cities, but it's still a part of our culture. And a part of that culture, a very real part of that culture, is that within the Bible Belt, there's an expectation that is upon you that you are to be in church on Sunday mornings. Now, you may not feel this here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, but the further you go away from these large city centers, you will feel it. And if you grew up in a small town, you know what I'm talking about. You understand that pressure that is felt. There is a cultural expectation that can result in people being in church who don't truly believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But that in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. We want unbelievers to hear the gospel. We want people who don't have faith in Jesus Christ to be in church and to hear the gospel preached faithfully, clearly. We want them to be challenged in their unbelief. But it is a bad thing when an unbeliever, unbeliever mistakenly believes, mistakenly thinks that he is a believer just because he shows up on Sunday mornings. It's a bad thing when someone who does not truly believe, thinks that he does just because he's filling a space in a chair or in a pew. And the cultural Christianity of our part of the country can lead people to this conclusion. But this morning's passage is a powerful reminder to us. We must not assume that just because we come to church on Sundays that we have true fellowship with Jesus Christ. And so I would ask you to think about this as we work our way through this passage this morning. Being in the church does not guarantee your acceptance by Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit must first give you the ability to confess Jesus as the Messiah. Again, being in church doesn't guarantee your acceptance by Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit must first give you the ability to confess Jesus as the Messiah. Now, once again, I've divided this passage up into three sections. Verses 21 to 23, I've titled, A False Confession. Verses 24 to 27, True Wisdom. And verses 28 to 29, Authority. Again, verses 21 to 23, A False Confession. Verses 22, 24 to 27, True Wisdom. And verses 28 to 29, Authority. Well, let's look first at verses 21 to 23. Jesus ministered in a culture in which the citizens of that culture consider themselves to be God's chosen people. They believed that by birth they had a right 
to claim all of the benefits, all of the privileges of the people of God. And Jesus, in this passage and throughout his ministry, he goes about this. He has to convince them that just because they were born into Judaism, it does not mean that they were automatically a part of God's kingdom. And that is why Jesus speaks so strongly in verses 21 to 23. He says there, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. These are chilling words. These are chilling words for us, for those of us who sit here this morning, for me who stand here before you with the challenge of preaching this passage. These are chilling words. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of God. He continues, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? On that day, the day of judgment, Jesus is talking about here, that final day where everyone will stand before him. And Jesus says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Depart from me. You workers of lawlessness, you evildoers, the King James says. Now let the full effect of these words wash over you. I never knew you. Depart from me. How could Jesus say this? How could he say this to a group of people now who have started to follow him? He's saying this to disciples. He's saying this to the members of Judaism. These are the people of God after all, are they not? This is what they've been taught by their religious leaders. Well, these verses were not just for the Jews in Jesus' day. They speak to anyone who claims to follow Jesus Christ. But what exactly does Jesus mean here? What does he mean? Well, James Boyce, in his commentary on Matthew, says of these verses, There will be people in the church who will confess Christ's divinity, but who will not be saved. They will be on the expansive road to hell. That is a frightening thought. There are those who have attached themselves to the church of Jesus Christ who do not truly have eternal life. How can something like this happen? How can this happen? How can someone be on the rolls of a church and yet not truly believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? How can a person profess faith in Christ and yet that faith be false? Well, in the preceding passage, in the passage we considered last week, Jesus warned of false prophets who seek to destroy our faith in Christ. He said that they preach a different gospel. He said they're like wolves in sheep's clothing who seek to devour and destroy. They preach a different gospel than what God has given to us in Scripture. And if the so-called church preaches this, if the so-called church preaches that Jesus Christ is not the only way to eternal salvation, if the so-called church preaches that everyone, everyone, as long as they believe, as long as they believe something, as long as they're good, that everyone has a right to eternal life, then who does that allow into the kingdom, the so-called kingdom? Virtually everyone. How can you exclude a single person? Because by those standards, anyone should be allowed in. The faithful preaching of the true gospel 
And the full counsel of God will help to prevent those who have not truly professed faith in Christ from being mistaken that they have. This is a real danger. So there are some who have come into the church because of an improper understanding of what it means to be a Christian. But Jesus says that there are others, some who will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? How is it possible that someone could do this and not be a true believer? Well, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus foretold a time when the abomination of desolation, which is mentioned in the, the book of Daniel, there would be a time when it would be fulfilled. And he said in verse 24 of that chapter, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. He is saying that there would come a time where false prophets and false Christs, what will they do? They'll be able to do amazing signs and wonders, and they'll do them in the name of Jesus. And their purpose, their intent in doing this, is to leave, lead even the elect, if it were possible, astray. Simply because these prophets are able to do amazing signs and wonders does not mean that they truly represent God. And this is something you need to keep in mind even today. Especially when you see people who claim to be able to do amazing and wonderful things. You need to keep this in mind. Be on guard. Because oftentimes their desire, and especially the ones Jesus is speaking about in Matthew 24, their desire, like wolves in sheep's clothing, is to tear your faith to shreds, to rip you out of the palm of the Lord Jesus Christ if it were possible to do. So some join themselves to the church who have not truly believed in Jesus Christ. Some do this. James, uh, in chapter 2, verse 19 of his letter, says this, You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons believe. You can believe. You can profess faith in Christ. But it does not mean that that faith has taken root in the pit of your soul, in the bottom of your hearts, in the depth of your minds. Even the demons believe. They believe to a degree. They know who Jesus is. In many ways, they know better than we do who Jesus is. But they will not submit to him as their king. They will not submit to him as their master. And there are many people within the church and without who refuse to do the same. Now, it is possible for unbelievers, as the Westminster Confession of Faith says, to have some common operations of the Spirit. And it goes on to say, yet they never truly come unto Christ, and therefore they cannot be saved. Now, it is possible in the wealth of God's grace as he pours out his grace upon his people, upon his children, there is an overflow of grace. There is abundance of it. And the common operations of the Spirit can work even on the hearts of unbelievers. And they may give what is considered to be a credible profession of faith. But Jesus says in verse 21 that only the person who does the will of his Father in heaven will enter the kingdom. True believers in Jesus Christ will be known by their fruits, not simply by what they say with their mouths. True faith inevitably produces fruit. It is easy to talk about faith, but it's much more difficult to live a life of obedience. Only those who have been treated, uh, excuse me, only those who have been truly and effectually called by God will be able to walk in obedience to everything that God has commanded in his word. 
Others can fake it for a while. And you've seen this. Others fake it. But their true nature will always show through. And to those who have been faking it, Jesus has strong words. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's look now at verses 24 to 27. True wisdom. As chilling as the words of verse 23 are, as chilling as these words, all of the words of these preceding verses have been, they are intended to shake those who do not truly believe out of a false sense of assurance. They're, they're, they're intended not to allow us to be complacent, and especially those who have a false sense of assurance. They should cause each of us, each of us to examine our minds and our hearts to determine the nature of our faith. But this should not cause those who truly believe in Christ to lose hope. It may shake us. It should cause us to look into our hearts. And all of you who will be taking of the Lord's Supper in, in a few minutes, you are called upon to examine your hearts and your minds to make sure that your faith is true. But it should not cause you to lose hope in your assurance of salvation. You see, it is possible to be certain that you have been saved by God's grace. It is possible to know without a doubt that you have been saved. 1 John 5, 13 says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. This is a certainty. You can know, the Apostle John says. You can know that you have eternal life. But in chapter 2, verse 3 of the same letter, John says this, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. You may know with certainty, but it's not enough simply to speak words. Obedience is required. Salvation is not granted as a reward for obedience, but obedience is the natural consequence. It's the natural byproduct of faith in Jesus Christ. It will inevitably come. Fruit will be born by those who truly profess faith in Jesus Christ. And that verse, chapter 2, verse 3 of 1 John, it captures Jesus' point in Matthew 7, verses 24 to 27. And he says this in verse 23. Uh, excuse me, he says this in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The primary way that God calls unbelievers to himself is through the preaching of the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. This is... For whatever reason, in God's wisdom, this is the means by which he calls sinners to repentance and faith in Christ. And this is referred to by some as an external calling. And our response to God's call is dependent upon our ability to hear. Jesus says, everyone who hears and builds. Now many respond to the external call of God and the proclamation of the gospel, and they truly believe. They hear, they believe. And these are the ones who have discovered the solid bedrock of Jesus Christ, and they build their faith and their lives upon that rock. But there are others who attach themselves to the church for a while, but they never wholeheartedly give themselves to the Lord. These are the ones Jesus mentions in verse 26, and he says there, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. Both types of people are profession, professing Christians. He's not talking about an avowed unbeliever. He's talking about 
professing Christians. But the wise one, the one who has wisdom, he is the one who has dug down to the bedrock. He is the one who has firmly planted his house on that foundation. That foundation, which is Jesus Christ himself. And so when the rains pour down and the floods come, what happens to his house? His house will stand. It will not be shaken. And that is because his faith does not rest on himself. It rests on Jesus. The foolish one built his house right on top of the sand. And it may look identical to the other house. Neither of the foundations can be seen, can they? But it will not stand when the fierce storms and the fierce rains come and the flooding pours through the house. The evidence that one has truly heard Jesus' words is that he obeys God's commands and he builds his house on the rock of Jesus. And when he has heard, he does the will of his Father in heaven, as Jesus says in verse 22. The evidence that one hasn't truly heard is that he does not obey God's commands. When the crises of life come, he will be destroyed. He will be wiped out. And we all know people for whom this has happened. You can truly know that you have eternal life. But as 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 says, this knowledge comes by keeping the commandments of God. Now, I would ask you now to turn in your Bibles to 2 Peter. 2 Peter. The Apostle Peter in 2 Peter verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 10 has this to say. He says this, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. Well, the qualities to which he refers are found starting in verse 5. He says that we are to supplement our faith with virtue, and our virtue with knowledge, and our knowledge with self-control, and then steadfastness, and godliness, and brotherly affection, and love. He says supplement your faith with these things. Everyone who professes faith in Christ should begin to display these qualities. Well, Peter says in verse 8, For these qualities are yours and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus commands us, be diligent in making your calling and election sure. This is that part of salvation in which you do have a part. Your justification is by Christ alone, through faith. But your sanctification, this is the part in which God graciously allows his people to participate. He allows us to participate with his, with his Holy Spirit who dwells within the hearts of believers. How do you make your calling and election sure? Well, the primary way that we do this, the primary way in which we strive to grow in these qualities that Peter lists, is by making diligent use of the means of grace, the Word of God, the sacraments, and prayer. And of course, this is all to be done, this is all expected to be carried out within the parameters of Christian fellowship. We must faithfully listen to and read God's Word. We must be diligent to hear it. We must have ears of faith to take it in. 
We must commit it to our memories. We who have been baptized need to improve our baptisms. That's the, word, the language of the larger catechism. We need to improve our baptisms by being thankful and being and considerate of our own baptism. When we see someone else baptized, when we see a little baby come before us and be baptized, we need to think of our own, even if we can't remember it. We need to think of the grace which is signified and sealed to us and how when we made that profession of faith, that grace became manifest in our lives. We who profess faith in Christ and partake of the Lord's Supper must do so with reverence for and meditation upon Jesus' death and resurrection. We must remember the body of Christ as it was broken for us. We must remember the blood which was shed for us when we partake of the sacrament. Then and only then will we feed upon Christ in faith and our souls will be nourished. And we are to regularly go before the throne of God's grace in prayer. We are to offer our hearts and our desires up to him, both privately and the congregation of God's people. These are the means of grace, the primary means, the ordinary means by which God conveys his grace to us. This is how he works. This is how he grows us. The word, the sacraments, and prayer. All within fellowship. All within being a part of a family, a household of faith. These are what God has ordained for our growth in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And regular participation in these will cause us to bear the qualities, the fruits of which Peter speaks in 2 Peter chapter 1. But Peter says in verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you lack these qualities, Peter says, you are blind. If you do not bear this fruit, you have forgotten that you have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, that precious blood of the eternal Son of God. In other words, if our lives don't bear these fruits, we are no better than an unbeliever as far as the church is concerned. We're behaving no differently. We have forgotten that Jesus Christ died for us when we fail to bear these fruits. It all comes down to hearing. Do you have ears to hear? Has God given you the ability to hear him when he calls you? Do you have the ability to actively listen to him as he speaks to you in his word? Hearing is a gift. Make no mistake. You cannot make yourself have ears of faith. And the person who truly hears will build his house, his faith and his life upon the rock that is Jesus Christ. And as we faithfully confess Jesus as the Messiah, as Peter did in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, as we faithfully do this, what does Jesus say he will do? He will build his church on that confession of who Jesus is, the Messiah, the long-awaited Son of God, the King, the eternal King. Jesus promises he will do this. Well, let's look now at verses 28 and 29, authority. This will serve as our conclusion uh, for the sermon this morning. Verse 27 marks the conclusion of Jesus' sermon. But Matthew makes an observation about the people who heard Jesus' sermon. He says in verses 28 and 29, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. What does it mean that Jesus taught with authority? What does it mean that he taught not like the scribes? Well, the scribes saw it as their duty 
their duty to be derivative. The scribes were not about being uh, original in their thinking. John Stott, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, says of their teaching, their only authority lay in the authorities they were constantly quoting. If you've ever read uh, the books by Kaim Potok, The Chosen and the Promise, you will see an exchange between a, a rabbi and his genius son, Rabbi Saun Saunders, and his genius son, Danny Saun Saunders. And they go back and forth. And their interpretation of Scripture, they know Scripture. Like the back of their hands, they know Scripture. But their interpretation is not their own. It's based on what the rabbis before them have said. They do not engage in original thinking upon the Scriptures. You can see this plainly on display in those novels. But what does Jesus do? Jesus quotes other authorities. He quotes other, other people, other sources, like the law of Moses, even in this, in this uh, sermon. He says in chapter 5, you have heard that it was said. And then he quotes the law of Moses. But then what does Jesus do? What does Jesus do? He says, but I say to you, you have heard it said. This is how the scribes interpret this. But I say to you, Jesus teaches with authority because he is the author of, of the word of God. And the law doesn't belong to Moses. It's not the law of Moses. It's the law of Jesus. And so with, when Jesus teaches, it is clear that he was its true author. J. Gresham Machen said of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus plainly puts his own words on an equality with what he certainly regarded as the divine words of Scripture. He claimed the right to legislate for the kingdom of God. What is he saying here? Jesus plainly puts his words on an equality with the word of God. In other words, Jesus speaks. And when he speaks, scripture comes from his mouth. And Jesus took it upon himself to legislate for the kingdom. He made laws. That's what Machen is saying here. He claimed that right. Why did he claim that right? Because he's the long-awaited Messiah. He's the long-awaited king of God's people. He's the only true legislator of the kingdom of God. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, as well as in the rest of the New Testament, we are struck by Jesus' authority. The pages of Scripture confront us with the question, Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It is not enough to follow along with the crowds. It is not enough simply to go with the herd, trying to remain anonymous. Jesus asked this question directly of Peter, and he asks it of you and of me. Who do you say that I am? It doesn't matter what these other people say. That has no bearing on your eternal standing before God. Who do you say that I am? Jesus teaches with authority. He speaks as one who knows that his words are the very words of God. And there is a very good reason for this, isn't there? It is because Jesus is God in the flesh. And so as you read the pages of Scripture, as you hear the call of the gospel when God's word is proclaimed, Jesus confronts you with that one question. Who do you say that I am? And there is only one answer to that question. There's only one answer that can come from a heart that truly hears Jesus' words. You are the Christ, the Son 
of the living God. This is the only answer we have if we proclaim him in faith. But if you refuse to confess Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah, if you refuse to do it, if you refuse to do it in your heart, if you refuse to do it publicly before men, or if you make a half-hearted confession, you say the words, but your heart does not mean it. The Lord is not uh, your king and your master. What does Jesus say that he will say to you on that last day? Depart from me. I have never known you. You worker, you worker of lawlessness. This should frighten us to our boots if we are uncertain. And yet Jesus makes promises to his people. If you truly believe and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and that the Lord has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you confess me before men, he says, I will confess you before my Father who is in heaven. But you must bear fruit. That's the proof. That's the evidence. Your lives must give a testimony to what your mouth has said. If you truly believe and confess, you will be forgiven of all your sins. And Jesus will welcome you on that last day into his eternal kingdom. This is the good news of the gospel. Believe it and you will be saved. Let us come before the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, our prayer is this. I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, give us that assurance of faith. But only, O oh Lord, may we have it if we truly believe. If we truly believe in the depths of our hearts. If our confession has been half-hearted, if we have been withholding, if we do not desire truly to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, strip all assurance from us. But Lord, in your mercy, cause us to fall at your feet and plead for forgiveness. Thank you for your words. And thank you for the challenges that your words present us with. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our hymn of response is hymn number five.